I think we have a tendency to be able to see things in others more clearly than we see them often in ourselves. Perhaps this is most apparent when you have young children. Children all of a sudden come into the world and you look at them and pretty easily you think, that child's selfish or greedy or covetous. And then don't you after a while wonder, I too am all those things. Why have I somehow had a blind eye for those things in ourselves? Again, I think it's because of that tendency to be able to see things more clearly in others than we do in ourselves. So instead of bemoaning that this morning, let's use that to our advantage. I think we can do that as we look at Luke 22, 54 through 65. This text, uh, by the time you get here in Luke's gospel, you've followed through Jesus uh, in the upper room with his disciples, telling them that he'll be betrayed. He's, he's agonized in the garden, praying, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, and then he's been arrested. And you would think, after all of that, the focus of Luke's gospel would remain centrally on Jesus, bringing Jesus to the forefront of everything. And indeed, Jesus is the focus of all the gospel in every aspect. But in this particular situation, right after Jesus' arrest, Matthew and Mark do keep Jesus at the forefront. They move on to Jesus' trial and report that, but that's not what Luke does. Luke takes us to a moment when Jesus has been brought to the house of Caiaphas, and there at the high priest's house, Peter has been following close at a distance, and Peter denies Jesus three times. And it's as Peter, then, is brought to the forefront of that story, this episode that just focuses us briefly on Peter, I think it gives us that opportunity to look at Peter, to look at Jesus, to see what's going on there, and perhaps see things in that story that we have a lot of trouble seeing in ourselves. And so my hope is that as we, as we look at that story and see those truths, we can more easily see those things and apply them to ourselves. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this episode in Luke's Gospel, Luke 22, 54 through 65, under four headings. So if you're following along, you can just basically follow under these four headings. And the one we're going to start with is the pride and failure of Peter. The pride and failure of Peter. There's one detail that Luke doesn't record in his gospel that Mark does in his. It's that after Jesus' arrest, all the apostles flee. All of Jesus' followers scatter, and they're gone. But Luke tells us that Peter followed at a distance as Jesus went on to the high priest's house. So in one sense, we can applaud Peter's courage. I mean, when others are scattering, he's following along. Though at a distance, he's following along to see what's happening with Jesus. And maybe, if you'd read Luke's gospel at this point, maybe you would say, well, it's not surprising that that Peter demonstrates some courage. After all, this is a bold, bold man. I mean, remember when Jesus had been with them in the upper room, and Jesus told Peter explicitly, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's response hadn't been to kind of look down sheepish and think, yes, that's me, I'm always failing. Rather, Peter had said, Lord, I am ready to follow you both to prison and to death. So we shouldn't be perhaps surprised by Peter's courage of following along close at a distance. Or close at a distance, that's contradictory, isn't it? Following Jesus at a distance. Well, as they get there, as they get to the courtyard, apparently the, the, the cool evening air had come in. Because what some of them do is they kindle a fire right there, and Peter, probably getting a bit chilled, 
decides that he's going to sit around the fire. But if he wanted to remain obscure, this was actually a mistake. You see, as that fire was lit there in the dark, it shone some light upon Peter's face. In fact, Peter's face was clear enough that there was another girl sitting across from him who recognized him. We read of her response to him in verse 56. Here's what Luke writes. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. Now again, if there was a time for Peter to prove his courage, his boldness, his willingness to say, you know, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever, this would be his opportunity to say to the girl, you're exactly right, I'm one of his followers. In fact, if you're going to lead him off to prison, lead me off to prison. If you're going to execute him, you're going to have to execute me because I am with him. But that's not at all what Peter says. We read in verse 57, Luke writes, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Now, maybe we could say here, well, Peter's called off guard. I mean, give him another chance and he'll get it right. But we'd be wrong there as well. We read in verse 58, and a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. But again, before we judge Peter too harshly, I mean, think about his head must be spinning. Think of all that's gone on at this point. They're in the upper room. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray him. Judas has walked out. They've walked out. They've they've seen Jesus agonizing in the garden. They've seen uh, soldiers and others come with swords for Jesus to be arrested. None of this Peter anticipated. In fact, Peter, not knowing what to do, had actually taken his sword and cut off the ear of the guard. Remember this, Malchus. And Jesus had, had taken the man's ear and put it right back on his head and healed him in a miraculous way. So at this point, you might say, well, Peter didn't see this coming. Everything's spinning out of control. I mean, just give him a little bit of time. Let the man process a bit, and then surely, let him calm down, let him process, present the question again. He is not going to deny the Lord a third time, right? Except we read in verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly, This man also was with them, for he too is a Galilean. You see, Peter was involved in a a little small talk, apparently, and as he spoke, his accent betrayed him. They realized, this is a Galilean. And if he's a Galilean, but he's a follower of Jesus. So again, they ask him, and once more, Peter's response. In verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster croaked. To this point, we've seen then Peter's pride in the upper room. Lord, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to follow you to prison and to death if necessary. And then we've seen Peter's failure, denying the Lord three times before the rooster crowed that day. But instead of pouncing on Peter, perhaps we should let his life and his failure at this moment shine some light on us. Because I think it can often be true of us as well that we are not as prepared, as equipped, as strengthened for times of temptation as we think we are. Rich Mullins, a Christian artist, wrote a song. It's actually a funny song. He wrote a song uh, one time because he was sitting around with a guy and they were talking, and he said, you know, Christians have no good breakup songs. 
And so they decided they would write a breakup song together. And the song's title was, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. Rich Mullen says, funny enough, in concerts, he would sing that. And people would come up to him and say, man, I apologize for what you went through. And he would say, it's not about me. I wrote it for you. But the title, I think, points to what is true of us. We are not as strong as we think we are. Think about how often we neglect the very means the Lord has given us to fight against sin. Just just take your own life. Just examine in the past week. This is convicting to me as well. What is it that Jesus tells his followers in the garden when he's agonizing in the garden of Gethsemane? Lest they enter into temptation, he says to them, pray. Pray so that you might not fall into temptation. When Jesus instructs us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, we are instructed to pray, do not lead me into temptation. Prayer that we might be strengthened to persevere in times of temptation is supposed to be a regular part of our lives, isn't it? I mean, if the Lord's Prayer says we are to pray for his daily bread, then it suggests that everything else in that prayer is something we should pray for daily as well. And one of those things we're supposed to pray for daily is, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Strengthen me so that I might walk in holiness in the face of temptation. Let temptation that would overwhelm me not come my way. And yet, I'm just asking, but how many of us neglect praying that way? Could it be that we fail to remember how weak we are in the face of sin? Perhaps we begin to let our guard down or to compromise in some smaller ways, and before long, we're practicing the very things that we never thought we would do. Allow Peter to remind us of the battle that we're in. My brother-in-law served in Desert Storm. It was in the early, mid-90s. He was there. And he tells a story that one day they were in their base camp, and just the three of them were standing around chatting, just, just in a circle like this. And they had scanned the area. There was nothing around for it for a great distance. And as they're sitting there talking one day, all of a sudden a bullet whizzes right in between all of them and strikes the ground so that they can see the dust fly up. And all of a sudden they panic, and they, they, they run, and they, and they gather inside and then arm themselves, and they're ready. And they found out later that it was actually a sniper who had fired at an incredible distance and had barely missed all three of them. But when they were gathered together later, my brother-in-law said, they gathered them together and their commander said to them, boys, it's okay that you take time to chat together about sports or whatever, but you must never forget we are at war. And I want to say the same to us. We can enjoy our lives. Indeed, we are to enjoy the gifts the Lord has given us unto him. But we must never forget we are at war with an enemy who is like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And so let us daily then make sure, learning from Peter's uh, example here in a contrary way to what he went through, to arm ourselves, to equip ourselves, to pray, to not let our guard down, but to make war against sin. But the second heading I think we see in this text as we work our way through it then is the forgiveness of Jesus. The forgiveness of Jesus. We read that uh, as 
Peter denied the Lord that third time, two things immediately happened. One, we read in verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter denied him, the rooster crows, and in that moment, the Lord turned and looked at him. Interestingly, that detail is only given in Luke's gospel, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. But the question is, why? What was Jesus communicating to Peter in that moment? I think, I think everybody agrees on this, he's communicating to him about their conversation in the upper room. But could it be, could it be, that Jesus was looking at Peter to say to him, see what a failure you are? I, I hope this brings you down a peg or two, you arrogant man. Could be. It could be that Jesus is, is, is showing Peter here, you have failed just like I've told you that you would fail, and you need to let your pride decrease a bit. But I don't think that's what Jesus was communicating as look. And the reason I don't think that's what Jesus was communicating is look to Peter that day is because that's not the posture that Jesus had taken with Peter in the upper room. You see, Jesus wasn't caught off guard in this moment, as if Jesus was being led across the garden and Peter denies him for a third time, and Jesus goes, good grief, I can't believe he did that. Of course Jesus knew, right? He had told him, this is explicitly what we're going to do. So when Peter does it and he looks at him again, communicating to him, remember what I told you. Think of the posture that Jesus had toward Peter in the upper room. He had told him explicitly, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But he didn't follow that up by saying to Peter, therefore, I hope this brings you down a peg or two. I hope this, this lowers you a rung or two on the ladder and you don't think so highly of yourself. That's not what Jesus had said to him then. Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But, he says to Peter, but I've prayed for you. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus had said to Peter, I know you're going to fail, and when you fail, I want you to know this, I've prayed for you. In other words, Peter, this will not do, be your undoing. This will not be the end of you. And the reason it's not going to be the end of you is because I've prayed for you. Not only have I prayed for you, but Peter, when you turn, that is, you're going to repent. This is not going to lead you down a path of self-destruction and ultimately destruction of your soul. No, no, no. You're going to turn. You're going to repent. And when you repent, strengthen your brothers. Now, that suggests not only when Peter repents, is Jesus not going to dismiss him, but he's not even going to label him a second-class citizen. Right? It's not as if Peter gets to be restored, but then always he has to wear some kind of scarlet D, right? I denied the Lord. Peter, you're, you're, you're there. You, you don't get to do anything special anymore, right? You can, you can be restored to me, but that's it. You've got to sit on the sidelines. No, Peter is told, you're going to turn and you're going to strengthen your brothers. You're going to continue to lead them, actually. And in fact, when you get to Acts 2, Peter is a leader of the church on the day of Pentecost. That's the first thing that happens. Jesus looks at him, I think, communicating, remember all the grace that I told you. I prayed for you, you'll turn, you will be used by me. The second thing that happens then is Peter's 
repentance. We read that the second half of verse 61, And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That right there, I think, is the beginning of Peter's repentance. So the very things that Jesus said would happen, you're going to deny me, but then you're going to turn, and you're going to be used of the Lord. This is a reminder of Christ's forgiveness for us. Now, the reason I want to highlight this for us is because I think the approach of the enemy toward us in regards to sin is directly contradicted by 1 John 2, 1. And yet, we're so prone to go the path in which the enemy tells us lies. Let me give you what I mean. You all know Satan's devices here, right? He says to us, sin, sin, sin. And then when we do sin, he says to us, you're condemned. The Lord wants nothing to do with you. You're, You're dismissed. You're over. If you go to pray, he's saying in your ear, do you really think he wants to hear you? You go to read your Bible, do you really think you're worthy to do this? Maybe even you walked in here today to worship with the people of God, and the enemy was still saying to you, do you really think you deserve to gather with the people of God and sing praises to the exalted Lord? As if he wants anything to do with you, you know what you've done. Sin, 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 and then he leaves you hopeless. But think of what John does in 1 John 2. In 1 John 2, 1, John writes to us, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? So the Lord says to us, don't sin. Walk in holiness. See the reality of what sin is, pictured here by what Peter does. It's a denial of the Lord's lordship over us, isn't it? But then John continues in 1 John 2, 1, But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you see how it's, it's the exact opposite? Do not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He's telling us not to sin, but reminds us that when we do sin, there's still hope for us. And the reason there's still hope for us is because we have an advocate. That is, we have one who intercedes for us, one who is praying for us. In other words, the very thing that Jesus said to Peter The reason you're going to persevere, despite this failure, is because of my prayer for you. That's true for us as well. This week, if indeed you have fallen into sin, if you have pursued uh, rebelling against the Lord Jesus Christ and things you know you should not have done, the Lord's reminding us this morning, I'm your advocate. I've prayed for you, he says. And so when you turn, know that there is forgiveness And you're not dismissed. You're not set on the sidelines. You're not forever having to remain a second-class citizen. The Lord uses his redeemed, repentant, and forgiven people. The third heading, then, is the trustworthiness of Jesus. The trustworthiness of Jesus. There's an interesting scene in verses 63 through 65. We read these words, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now what's ironic about this moment 
is the nature of their mockery. Their mockery isn't to say to Jesus, you're a physically weak man, right, pushing him around. Their mockery specifically is that he's unable to prophesy. That's what they're claiming, right? They would beat him or spit on him or do something, and they would say as he's blindfolded, prophesy. Tell us if you can, which one of us hits you? Right, the, the notion in their mind is, that's ridiculous, you're not able to do that. Ironically, Jesus would have been utterly able to do that. In fact, the last thing that happened in our text is precisely what Jesus had said would happen to a T hours earlier. There's no doubt in my mind, there's no doubt in any of our minds, is there, that Jesus could have, if he had wanted to, said, you're Steve, right? That was Jason, right? Called it all out. In fact, he could have said to them, this is every detail you've done this week, and this is every detail you would do next year. The reality is, by their mockery, the reader, the believer, is supposed to see that they're mocking Jesus about the very realities of what he has shown us to be true of him, that he is the one who knows all things, that he is the one who speaks truly, that his word is trustworthy. It was only a little while late earlier in Luke 18, 32 and 33 that Jesus had said about the Son of Man, about himself, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and treated shamefully and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Now, we haven't gotten to the resurrection. We haven't gotten to the crucifixion in Luke's gospel yet. But at this point already, being handed over and being mocked is already happening. Jesus always speaks truthfully. For us, this is an incredibly important reality. Because the whole of the Christian life is built upon the reality that Jesus' words can be trusted. That's how you begin the Christian life. I mean, think about it. This is how you were converted. We can tell our testimonies. They may sound a thousand different ways, but they essentially come down to this. You heard the word of Christ, and by faith, you trusted his word was true. That's how all of us have become believers. It may have been that your parents taught you the faith, and by hearing it, faith came by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It may have been that, that someone ministered you in prison and did the same thing, right? It could be a, a very a number of ways, but that's how we begin the Christian life. We, by faith, recognize that Jesus' word is trustworthy and true. Now let's go to the end of the Christian life. Someday, Jesus will return, and when he returns, those of us who have died will be raised from our graves in glorified bodies. Those of us who are alive in that moment, our bodies will be changed in an instant. We too will be glorified, given resurrected bodies. And all of our life right now is lived believing that that's going to be true. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, Paul says, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But because we trust it's true, because we know there is a resurrection coming, it changes everything about how we live, doesn't it? I mean, think about what you do with your money. And this is a nice thing, I'll admit, to be a pastor— in another church bringing up this issue. It's easier to talk about. But think about what some of you do, and I trust all of you faithfully do this. You earn a paycheck, and then you take a considerable amount of that check, and you give it away for the purposes of the Lord, to be used for his kingdom, to be used to, to exalt his name, to, to further the work of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, if the resurrection is not true, do you see how foolish that is? 
If there's no resurrection, this is why Paul says, we're to be of all men most pitied. Because we do everything we do in light of the fact that the resurrection is true in light of the fact that Jesus' words are trustworthy. And that's just one example. The reality is every time that you sin, you're doubting the truthfulness of God's word. He says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you say, I think by looking at this lustful image, it will give me the pleasure I desire. Well, that's failing to believe God's word and believing a lie. Or if we were to do it positively, every time you say, I'm not going to gossip, but I'm going to speak a word that is edifying about my brother and sister in Christ instead, you're doing it because you trust that God's word, which tells you this is what he has commanded and is good for you, really is good for you. And so you obey. All of the Christian life, in other words, is lived on the basis of trusting in Jesus' word. What that means for us, then, just practically speaking, brothers and sisters, we need to know this book. Now, yes, you have pastors who stand, Lord willing, on Sunday mornings and teach you the word of God. But it's our responsibility of children of God, as, as, as brothers and sisters of Christ, it is our responsibility to know what he has commanded so that we might trust it and obey it and command others to do so in our lives. That's what the Great Commission commands us. Jesus says, command them to obey all that I've commanded you. So we have it here. So we've seen the pride and failure of of Peter. We've seen the forgiveness of Jesus. We've seen uh, the trustworthiness of Jesus. And finally, we see the suffering of Jesus. The suffering of Jesus is also there in verses 63 through 65 as they blindfold him, as they mock him, as they beat him. It's a painful reality to watch, isn't it? This is the Lord of glory. This is God the Son incarnate who took on flesh for us and for our salvation. He is the one who, according to Romans chapter 1, he is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. In Galatians, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. And it is that one who loves us so dearly, whom we love as well, who is being mocked and beaten as he is blindfolded. But what we see here as well is the beginning of what Jesus prayed about in the garden. You see, in the garden, Jesus has said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the cup, if you examine the Old Testament references to the cup, the cup consistently represents the wrath of God. Jesus, uh, the, the Father, whatever would say, God would say in the Old Testament, uh, Babylon, you're going to drink the cup of the wine of my wrath. Uh, he would say this to his enemies. You're going to drink down my cup, uh, not diluted, but, but wine full strength. Right? What Jesus then is praying about in the garden is he's saying, Father, if there be any other way, let it pass for me. Instead of me drinking down the cup of the wine of your wrath, instead of me on the cross bearing the wrath of God that sinners deserve, if there be any other way, let that pass. Nevertheless, he says, your will be done. What it shows us is that's precisely what happened on the cross. As Jesus died on the cross, sometimes we could perhaps get caught up in the physical suffering of thorns on his head or nails in his wrists and feet or the like. But the main thing that's happening at the cross isn't merely Jesus' physical suffering. The main reality that's happening at the cross is the wrath of God for sinners is being poured out on him instead of us. 
And that work of drinking down the cup of God's wrath for sinners like you and me happens right here as Jesus' suffering begins. This will climax in his death. This has an amazing reality for us. What it means for us is that if you and I have repented of our sins and placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we, though we deserve God's wrath in full measure forever, we will never see it. Remember a number of years ago, Lily and I, we have four kids now, we had three then. 07, 09, the church in an unprecedented way. Actually, I was standing right here uh, the night that they voted on it. Uh, church voted to give me a two-year full-paid sabbatical. We would move up to Louisville, uh, spent time there. I remember one Sunday, I was, I was working so much on dissertation stuff that I just felt overwhelmed and in so many ways felt like I was neglecting my responsibilities as a Christian husband, a Christian father. In so many ways, my sin was just ever before me. And I remember one time walking into a church service uh, there at the church we were part of in Louisville, and the enemy was telling me the very things that I suggested he may be telling you this morning. Why, why do you think you even deserve to be here today, right? Yeah, the Lord wants nothing to do with you. Look at yourself. And I remember as we came in, one of the first songs we sang was a song I wasn't familiar with. But the song started this way with these words, I don't deserve to be your servant and how much less to be your child. Anger and wrath, sure condemnation should be my portion my just reward. As we sing those words, I remember stopping and thinking to myself, man, I really resonate with what we're singing so far. That's exactly the way I feel. I don't deserve to be your servant, much less to be your child. Anger, wrath, sure condemnation should be my portion, my just reward. That's exactly how I felt. And the very next line said this, never have seen it, never will know it. Your loving kindness enfolds my life. All you have shown me is grace, love, and mercy. But the reality, brothers and sisters, is indeed, as children of God, that's all we will ever see, but not because we deserve it. And he doesn't show us grace and love and mercy instead of his wrath because God decided, well, I'm just going to look over your sins. Boys will be boys and girls will be girls. Just sweep it under the rug. No. The reason we will never see God's wrath is because God, the Son, took on flesh and on that cross drank down every drop of the wrath of God in that cup so that there's none left over for us. This morning, we get to rejoice that this forgiveness that Jesus showed Peter is ours as well because of what Christ has done. He lived, he died, and he was raised so that we might become children of God and so that we might love him and obey him and know eternal life. And so this morning, I just want to charge you as we see this example in Peter to remember that we're at war against sin, to remember the forgiveness that is ours because we have an advocate with the Father, to remember the trustworthiness of Christ's word and know it and obey it, and then finally, never to lose sight of why it is that we can have forgiveness of sins because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord. Amen.